Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before introducing today's guest, I thought I'd mention that I have a new book coming out this summer. It's called The Price of Everything, A Parable of Possibility and Prosperity. Like my other books, it's written in the form of a novel to help make the, the economics more interesting. It's the story of Ramon Fernandez, a Cuban-American tennis prodigy at Stanford University, who gets involved in a campus protest over a price-gouging retailer that's a large donor to Stanford. The provost in the story is an economics professor who becomes interested, for reasons that aren't entirely clear at first to the reader, in helping Ramon understand economics. They talk about the role of prices, emergent order, what makes economies grow, what motivates entrepreneurs, and how technology is driven by incentives. If you like these podcasts, you might find the price of everything of interest. My guest today is Don Boudreau, my colleague and chair of the Department of Economics here at George Mason University. Don, welcome back to Econ Talk. Always good to be here. Our topic today is oil prices and the price of gasoline, a topic that is much in the news and based on your emails out there in our listening audience, much on your mind. I want to start with the idea of the demand for gasoline and, and oil in the United States and around the world. Don, people seem to think that there's a tipping point for demand curves, a sort of psychological barrier that at some point, if price gets high enough, people cut back. But before that, they just keep buying gasoline no matter what the price. They don't notice until it hits, say, $2 a, a gallon or $3 a gallon. Is that true? I doubt it. I'm, uh, I mean, look, let's assume for the moment that it is true. I don't think it's true. But let's assume it's true. And what does it, what does it mean? Well, it means that... Uh, uh, g- gasoline is priced so inexpensively, it's such a minor part of people's budgets that they can afford to absorb relatively large percentage increases in it. And, and so what, what, what are we complaining about? But the reason I suspect it's not true, of course, is I, I assume, and I think it's true, that oil companies are profit-maximizing entities. They want to make as much money as possible. Well, if that were true... Then if, if why, it were true that people didn't respond to if, price, if people, yeah, if people, yeah, well, if people didn't respond to price, then why wouldn't they just keep raising prices until they hit the point where people did start responding to them? Well, if, they, if, if I can sell you a cup of coffee at uh, you know x number of cups of coffee every month for a dollar, and then the same number if I charge two dollars, why wouldn't I charge two dollars? And then why wouldn't I keep pushing that those price increases until you started to to respond? But Call me naive, I believe that, as we economists say, demand curves slope downward to the right. It may be that at lower prices, the um, ways in which people respond to higher prices are less noticeable, yeah. uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm sure they're there. Be an interesting thing to make a list of the way that people respond to prices. I think when people think of demand curves uh, being vertical, which is what a sort of common perception people have about <clears throat> gasoline demand curves. They have in mind that when the price goes up, they say, well, people still drive. Mm-hmm. As if somehow the response should be to stop driving if driving gets too expensive. What, right. what people do is they drive less and they, or they can serve on, on gasoline in these subtle ways. Mm-hmm. They take fewer trips to the grocery. 
they eventually buy a different car if the price stays long enough. Everyone has noticed that SUVs aren't selling very well. They might even move closer to work eventually if the price got high enough. So the short run, first, I think the first point to make is the short run response is going to be very different than the long run response. Long run response is always as we teach Which is students, standard economic theory. Yeah, yeah, standard economics is that is the long run response going to be stronger. But I think your question about profit maximizing behavior could be that they'd like to raise the price to five and six dollars a gallon, but competition among them keeps them from doing that. I, I think there's a more fundamental mistake that, that that we hear in the press often about this presumption that people I'm don't. Gonna, I'm going to challenge you on that. Okay, though. go ahead, and I'll come back to my final. Well, if, if people don't notice, then then I mean, it may be. I think it's kind of indeterminate. Well, if that's pe- a good pe- point. Yeah, if <laughs> people don't notice, you may as well. You're right. You don't have to worry about competition. You just raise it to three dollars. People just blindly. Yeah. Keep- yeah, yeah, you're right. And well, so the very <laughs> fact, the very fact that 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 competition would tend to keep prices down, as as it does often, you know, even though lately gasoline prices have been rising, anyone listening to this podcast can recall several, many instances where gasoline prices at the pump fell. And so, if competition uh, causes prices to fall, it must be that people notice. Yeah, that's a good point. Fair enough. But let me go to what I think is the bigger flaw in the in the sort of common perception people have, and I've read. Uh, a number of articles recently that talk about how, well, yeah, finally, now that it's hit $4, people are starting to cut back. And I think people have made a a very common mistake that we work with our students on, which is that price responds to consumer demand and productive producers' supply, and it also creates an incentive. It has a feedback mechanism to affect demand and supply. And people have a lot of trouble keeping that straight. Most students have trouble keeping that straight. So, for example, price has been rising over the last couple of years in the United States, possibly because demand is increasing. So we wouldn't expect people to be cutting back. If, if the United States and other countries are more prosperous and have increased their demand for gasoline, we'd expect prices to go up. And we'd expect people to consume more gasoline. Now, some people seem to think, uh, it's a standard exam question I use, I'm sure you use it too in in principles. People seem to think, oh, that violates the law of demand, that demand curves slope downward. Higher prices and people are buying more. They should be buying less. No, if the source of the higher prices is the increased demand by citizens uh, or or users – then we'd expect a a positive correlation between usage and price. Now, what's actually happened in the United States in recent years, in the recent months, I think, is that not that people have noticed that the price is higher, but that our economy has slowed. It seems to be still be growing, but at a much slower pace. The demand for gasoline is slowing uh, in its expansion. But in other parts of the world, China, for example, the demand for energy has been growing, still growing dramatically, pushing price up a lot. And overcoming any increase in demand that we might still be having. And I think it's an important point. I'll, I'll let you react to it in a sec, but I, I want to make a, an important side point because this is part of a, a general uh, fallacy that people have about prices. As a consumer, we want, you want low prices. Low prices are good for us. Uh, but it doesn't You want low market prices. Low market prices. But it doesn't – yeah, correct. Not – legally regulated prices. But what doesn't follow from that, which people mistakenly think it does, is therefore high prices must be a sign that we're being harmed. If our economy is growing and we're very prosperous as a, as a society and we increase our demand for various things, and I'll pick three, where the supply response is, is going to be small in the short run in response to the higher prices. If in response to our prosperity, we drive up the prices, save for energy, 
education and housing, which I think has been true for the last 25 years in the United States, the fact that it's more expensive to go to school, the fact that it's more expensive to own a home than it was 25 years ago in the United States, people like to use that. See, that's, 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 that's pricing people out of the market. But it's, in fact, exactly the opposite. It's our ability to afford education, housing, and I would add healthcare, that is pushing up the price. It's not a violation of economic theory. It's not an indictment of our economy. And it's a sign of prosperity, not the opposite. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. You know, Julian Simon, uh, whose spirit I think will run through this entire discussion, as I, I anticipate, um, he points out that uh, the, the one resource that has consistently risen in real value, price over time. You know, most resources consistently fall in price. And why is that? Uh, we could talk about that later, but you know, people have an incentive to to, to find to find more oil, find more coal, find more tungsten, whatever it is. Competition drives that, and, and as we become more efficient at, 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 at producing things, extraction usage, and real values of those things fall. Uh, but the the one resource that consistently rises in value is human labor. And now, you know, of course, because most of us sell our labor, we think it's a great thing. But it's, it's a resource. And uh, the same logic at some level that would apply to oil and uh, uh, housing and lumber should apply to labor. Uh, it, it's not... It, the increased value of human labor over time reflects the increased productivity of, of, of human labor. So in a sense, the increased value of oil reflects the increased productivity of oil. And in this sense, it's the increased, uh, increased demand. It's, it's a higher, it's providing more urgent, it's satisfying more urgent human needs than it did in the past. Now, of course, there are all kinds of distortions in the oil market. We, we can't overlook that. But overall, you're right, there's absolutely nothing in and of itself about an oil price rise that's that's disturbing. It may be inconvenient for consumers, but it's not doesn't it doesn't indict economic theory. It doesn't show that economic theory um, can't explain what's going on, and it doesn't mean that our standard of living is doomed. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to that question of what the implications for our economy. I think a lot of people uh, are very alarmed at this increase over recent months and now over a year in the price of gasoline, the price of energy generally, and think. <clears throat> it has some serious impact potentially on our standard of living. I want to come back to that. I want to, but first, I want to I want to give a little background, a little theoretical background on this oil price and resource price generally, and we'll and bring in Julian Simon. Uh, there's a classic problem in economics that when you have a resource that is fixed, a fixed pool, uh, that the price should rise steadily over time. Uh, it depends on the assumptions you make about the uh, nature of the industry, whether it's competitive or monopolistic. But basically, uh, in a competitive industry, a price should rise roughly at the rate of interest because if it is rising at a slower rate than the rate of interest, <coughs> that encourages the owners of the resource to keep it uh, uh, in the ground, invest their money instead – excuse me, keep, take it out of the ground, invest the money in – 
in things that bear interest or pay interest. And that, in turn, should push the price down. And so the path of price has to be roughly equal to the rate of interest. If it's rising faster than the rate of interest, you'd want to store it in the ground. And that, again, would slow the price level down until it was uh, back rising at the rate of interest. So that is an arbitrage condition, mm -hmm. meaning that it, there's a profit opportunity there if price is rising in something other than the rate of interest. So based on that theory, which is a very uh, simplistic and elegant theory, based on that theory, we would expect the price of oil and other things that are fixed, because after all, the amount of oil in the, in the world is pretty much fixed. It's, it was it, geologic processes created it. <clears throat> there isn't more coming. So the standard view, I think, of many people who know a little bit of economics is that it's natural for the price of oil and other resources to rise steadily over time as, they be, as we get closer and closer to exhausting their supply. Now, the real world hasn't, doesn't behave that way. And the standard reason it doesn't, the most obvious reason, is that in all of those models, the price of extraction is fixed. There's a certain existing technology for taking out the resource. As, the, as there's innovation and technological improvement in the extraction process. And, and the discovery process. And the discovery, absolutely. Because even though it's, quote, there's a fixed amount, we don't know how much that is right. or where it is. And as a result, it's very uh, common throughout uh, the last couple centuries that the prices of so-called exhaustible resources, resources that have a fixed supply, uh, not, we're not talking about lumber now. We're talking about coal and oil and tungsten and those other things. Uh, they've actually fallen in price through long stretches of time. It's only very common. It is the norm. It is the norm. Yeah. And the reason is human ingenuity that has found better and better ways to extract them. And I think p some people have looked at the last few uh, months and years of, of oil and say, ah, now it's kicking in. But there's no reason to think that that is going to be true, that the price of oil will rise steadily from now on out, is there? No. In fact, I'm looking at, I have an article before me by the great MIT economist, Morris Edelman, that he published in Regulation Magazine in spring of 2004. So it's not that old, four years old. And he has a quotation from one John Strong Newberry, the chief geologist of the state of Ohio, who predicted that the supply of oil would soon run out. I'm quoting now from, from uh, Edelman's article. The alarm has been sounded repeatedly in many decades since. In 1973, State Department analyst James Akins, then chief U.S. policymaker on oil, published, quote, The Oil Crisis, This Time the Wolf is Here, That's the <laughs> title of his article, in which Akins called for more domestic production and for improved relations with oil-producing nations in the Middle East. In 1979, President Jimmy Carter, echoing a CIA assessment, said that oil wells, quoting now Carter, were drying up all over the world, end quote. And just last year, so 2003, the New York Times reported that oil reserves are expected to, w to dwindle in the decades ahead. Um, uh, and, you know, of course, the very nature of the crying wolf story, at some point, the belief is the wolf may show up. But I've seen nothing in the um, current situation to suggest that it is any different from the panic that we felt. And I remember very well, as a, as a young man, back in the 1970s uh, and, and, and very early 80s. I don't have any particular reason to think that the wolf is here. If I did, if I did, I, I would be investing more, much more heavily in oil futures than I, than I am. Um, but I want to I I let, I actually want to ask you to say something, Russ, in just a moment. But, but let me first draw a picture of, of an analogy. I thought, it, it's, first of all, technically it's not true that the amount of oil 
is fixed. Right? Now, I'm not going to harp on this because I don't think it's a major point, but you, you can go right down today to the store right behind campus, the, the, the Sunoco station, and buy synthetic fuel oil to put into your, in, your, uh, uh, in your car's engine. I'm not sure what it's made out of. It's probably got some petroleum in it, but it's a synthetic oil. It's not oil in the way we, we think of it. And also, you know, there's oil in shale, and so are we talking about just oil laying in huge deposits in the ground? Are we talking about oil that can be extracted from shale? Um, the, 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 how we define what is oil itself has some variance in it. But, but put, put that question aside. Let's, let's assume, okay, there's a fixed amount of oil out there. So here's an analogy. Imagine a mosquito uh, uh, you know, who drinks blood, a mosquito coming down onto a... Um, a balloon, right? And it's going to extract uh, some blood from that. It's a blood-filled balloon, right? Now, so the what a lovely image. The, yeah, <laughs> the and so the blood is in the, the analogy of oil for the mosquito. Well, you could tell the mosquito, and let's assume he's a, he's a she's a rational mosquito. So you know the amount of the amount of blood is 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 limited, right? Should, should the mosquito worry? Well, it depends. If the if the balloon upon which the mosquito is extracting the blood is about the size of, say, a child's marble, well, maybe the mosquito should worry. You know, a couple of a couple of meals and things get pretty low. But suppose the balloon is the size of twenty Olympic-sized swimming pools. Well, that mosquito can basically treat it as an unlimited resource. I mean, in fact, in physical fact, it's limited. There's only a limited amount of of blood you can stick in a balloon the size of 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools, but from the perspective of the mosquito, it's practically unlimited, right? You can treat it as such. And so, and so the relevance here is we don't know. We don't know how much oil there is. Maybe we're the equivalent of the mosquito tapping into huge Olympic-sized swimming pool or the equivalent of uh, stores of oil. Maybe it is the size of, well, we know it's not the size of a, of a marble since we've had oil for quite some time. And maybe it's the size of a giant tennis ball. We don't know. And to say, oh, it's limited, only begins the conversation. It doesn't end the conversation. But too many people treat it as ending the conversation. Oil is only a limited amount of petroleum. Therefore, we're going to run out. Therefore, the price must inevitably rise. It's simply not, that's not true. And to go back to the example you used earlier, to the extent that we can, we, we, and we do, we keep finding more oil, uh, finding uh, 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 better ways to extract oil, to make the, the, the discovery less expensive, the extraction less expensive. Uh, though, all those discoveries are at least consistent with the hypothesis that the amount of oil that we have available to us is, huge. It, it, it could be the equivalent of the 20 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And... Again, I just emphasize that saying it's fixed doesn't solve, doesn't and settle it, anything. And I, you know, one response to that would be, well, that's just that's just uh, looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. You know, we could have plenty. But what's I think what's striking well, is that long, empirically, look at the long-term trend of oil prices. Empirically, well, not just that. You know, the, the long-term trend of reserves. Yeah. Uh, known reserves keep climbing. Yeah. Oil acts like. An infinite resource. <laughs> that's right. It may not. It may not act. Well, I'm pretty confident it's not. You said more, but, more, but it more acts like it interacts with our lives as if it were an infinite resource. In that we seem to not have any signs that it is physically limited. Let me quote again from the Edelman article. Again, this is from Regulation Magazine, Spring 2004, and, and Edelman is a widely respected 
energy economist at uh, MIT. Um, he says that uh, at the end of 1970, uh, non-OPEC countries had about 200 billion remaining improved reserves. In the next 33 years, these countries, those countries produce 460 billion barrels and now have 209 billion remaining. He has that in quotes. So the 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 remaining reserves are the same as they were 30-something years before, e despite e producing enormous amounts. Even though they produced uh, more than double... What they supposedly had what, in reserve. What they supposedly had yeah. in reserves in 1970. Back to quoting Edelman. The producers kept using up their inventory at a rate of about 7% a year and then replacing it. The OPEC countries started with about 412 billion improved reserves, this is 1970 again, produced 307 billion, and now have about 819 billion left. <laughs> Their reserve numbers are shaky, but clearly they had and have a lot more inventories than they used up. Inventories in the ground, inventories by the way, not in the like ground. sitting in a warehouse. Yeah, and I, I'm sure most of the listeners know this, but but proved reserves or known reserves, uh, which is often used by the press to scare people. Oh, we only have X number of reserves. It's uh, 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 well, let me go back to Julian Simon. He, he says, look, this is analogous to the amount of food you have in your cupboard. You can look in your <laughs> cupboard and, and, okay, I have this amount of food in my, but in my cupboard. I'm going to starve to death in three days. But it do, right. Yeah. It doesn't tell you. The amount of food you have in your cupboard tells you nothing about how much food there is available to you in your community. Because when you run low, you go out and you explore for more and you acquire more. And so it is with, with oil. Uh, there is no point in discovering and uh, oil reserves – uh, when the price is at a, at a certain level and we have X amount of known reserves on hand. When that price rises and or when the known reserves shrink, we go out and we discover more. And it's true. You can always imagine, well, one day we'll go out, we'll start looking for more oil and we won't be able to find any more. But that hasn't happened yet because it hasn't happened yet. Why should we today uh, uh, worry? Yes, the, the the real price of oil is today higher than it was in 1981 when it last peaked. Uh, I don't know this for a fact. I think it's not as high as it was back in the 1870s and 1880s. I don't know. Um, I think it's hard to make those comparisons. But but I want you, Russ, to, to uh, tell the listeners your story that you have in uh, the Invisible Heart about the uh, pistachio nuts. Yeah, I'll tell it briefly. We, I'll put a version. I have an online version of that for people who want to read it. But the simple idea is that if, if you were given a um, – if you love pistachio nuts and you were given a room full of pistachio nuts that you could invite your friends and had the world's greatest stereo system and you could party there all you wanted. But the only limitation is that uh, you can't – they're in the shell and you have to keep the shells in the room. So you have to litter the room with the shells of the eaten pistachio nuts. So the question is would you ever use up all the pistachio nuts no matter how many parties you threw, no matter how many friends you brought in there, no matter how many times you went into that room. Well, eventually the room would start to fill up with shells and <coughs> I'll mention the um, – the peak oil thesis here, which is this strange idea that economists don't understand but seems to have some foothold that we're now on the downward <coughs> trend, that somehow the amount that's left is somehow less than than the amount that we used to have before. We've peaked. Uh, the, the annual output is, is falling. And and this uh, this is a non-economic concept. We're always – we always have a limited amount of oil. It's only the price that adjusts to keep mm -hmm. our desires of oil in line with the output of it. Uh, but if you go back to the the pistachio pistachio room, as the shells start to accumulate, 
in the early days of partying in the room, you reach down, you pull up a handful. It's waist high, say. So there's, and it's a, it's a big room. So there's, there's millions of pistachios in the room. So after the first few dozen parties, it's still easy to reach your hand down and pull out pistachio nuts. And, and most, most of your hand is full of pistachios in the shell rather than ones you've already eaten. But after a while, you start sifting through more shells than, than pistachios. And if you've ever put a bowl of pistachios on your table and, and uh, put the shells back in the bowl because you only brought out one bowl, you, you start to look and look. And there's almost always one more. But in that room, there'd be a lot more than one more left because the time it would take, even though they're, quote, free, you're not paying for them out of pocket, the, ex- the extraction cost, the time cost it would take to sift through would eventually make it profitable for you to buy your pistachios and give up the free resource. So that's what's going to happen with oil, presumably, is as, as it truly does get scarcer, whether that's in 10 years or 1,000 years, eventually the price will rise. That will make other sources of energy economical, <coughs> and people will stop using oil. Now, what I think is interesting, and, and let's turn to this now unless you want to add something else. I think people want to hurry that along. There's a certain incipient panic that it's gotten so expensive we've got to do something. We've got to find those sources more quickly rather than relying on the natural role the prices play in inducing people to make substitutions away from oil and to make other sources more profitable. So, for example, we bet on ethanol. Since we are, quote, running out of oil, again, sort of by definition, but sort of not, but in the public mind, we're running out of oil, we have to have alternatives. So what are the alternatives? I'm putting aside here other issues that we will come back to, perhaps, which are pollution and the the political instability in the Middle East and other issues which which are relevant. But right now, we're going to focus on just the, the, some of the narrow economic issues. People had this idea that we, we've got to get ethanol going or hydrogen or whatever it is or solar to make sure that we can cope with, our economy can cope with uh, the higher price of the scarcity of gasoline and, and carbon-based oil. And the fact is, is that that comes totally naturally to the economy. We don't <coughs> need to hurry it along or induce it on that ground alone. Uh, we'll do just fine. And in fact, we're more likely to make a mistake and pick a technology by trying to override the market, pick a technology that's a mistake that's actually more expensive, which is what I think what we've done with ethanol with all kinds of very unpleasant unintended consequences. Remember the Sinfuels uh, fiasco and later part of the Carter years? There was a huge – I can't remember the details, but there was a Sinfuels initiative, um, S-Y-N as opposed to S-I-N. Fuels, synthetic fuels that uh, some, a lot of money poured into it, and, and it went nowhere. Um, and a lot of money is being poured into alternative energy sources right now by the private sector, looking, as it always does, at different opportunities for investing. It's a huge venture capital a- initiative right now. No one's in charge of it. It's not under anyone's control, but a decentralized, emergent effort to find alternatives. And if you strike it rich, you find the one that is really effective, that's better than oil, cleaner, cheaper, whatever, you'll become an extraordinarily wealthy person, and that incentive is very powerful. People forget that, that oil was not always the, the major energy source for industrial economies. Uh, uh, before oil, there was coal. And so let me read uh, uh, something here uh, from William Stanley Jevons. Jevons, of course, all economists know Jevons' name. He's one of the three uh, co-discoverers of the, the idea of the margin, the, one of the three marginal revolutionists along with Menger and Valra. Um, and, uh, and so in 1865, uh, Jevons wrote a book uh, that uh, supposedly, in Jevons' view, proved 
that the growth of England's industry must soon grind to a halt due to the exhaustion of England's coal. And I'm quoting now Jevons. It will appear that there is no reasonable prospect of any relief from a future want of the main agent of industry. We cannot long continue our present rate of progress. The first check for our growing prosperity, however, must render our population excessive. So the same fears that we have now, population's excessive, we're running out of the main fuel of our industrial economy, our current rate of progress, we've enjoyed up till now, but boy, it's going to come to a living's at risk. Grinding halt. And, uh, 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 and also Jevons, in, in that book, uh, he, he determined that uh, there was no way oil could replace coal as a major source of, of energy. Now, Jevons was not a stupid man. Jevons had no agenda, no political agenda. I, there's no reason to believe that he didn't firmly believe what he wrote. But when you look back on it, some, what is it now, you know, hundred and nearly 150 years later, uh, it's, it's an absurd claim. And again, now maybe the wolf is here now, but why would we think so? Just, just because we're now, at, we're now in one of these trends when the real price is rising. It's true, uh, uh, I think, that one of the main drivers of the increase in the price is uh, the, the rising demand from China and, and India. But even that, uh, uh, let's think about that. If China and India are growing that much, they, 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 their growth, in order for them to have an effective demand for oil, to express uh, higher effective demands for oil, they have to give up something for it. Oil-producing nations aren't just giving oil to China and India in exchange for nothing, leaving less oil to be given to the United States and Western Europe. And so China and India are producing valuable things for this oil. Right. And so we're made wealthier, I mean, because these, these things that they produce, they go into the stream of international commerce and make us wealthier as a consequence. So whatever uh, in, increase in the cost that we have, to, whatever is our increased cost of acquiring oil is offset to some extent. I don't know how you measure it precisely, but surely it's offset to some extent by the increased output of goods and services from these countries that that we enjoy. So it's not just, oh, China and India are wealthier and it's all a net loss to us. China and India are wealthier, they have to pay for their oil by exporting things. These exports wind up in world markets and we're all made better well, off, on as that, a consequence of those exports. But on, the, on the, that perspective, I think most of those gains are, I assume, captured by the oil-producing nations. I, w I would think the causation is a little more complicated than that, that because of their increased productivity due to their reform of their economic systems, they have become more productive. And to make some of those things that we do value and enjoy, they use more oil. So I, I, it's not just so much that they're paying for the oil. Yes, that's right. that's right. Okay. That's right. Um, but it does raise an interesting question, going back to the wolf at the door and the Jevons. And by the way, we have the Jevons book, The Coal Question. Available online at the Library of Economics. Is that the book that you were quoting from? Yeah. So we have that book online if you want to read an early doomsday, uh, incorrect doomsday uh, story. And as you point out, uh, if you cry wolf long enough, you, you might be right. Of course, you're still, you, it might be you're never right. The wolf just isn't around. Mm -hmm. uh, it's never coming. But, but I do sense uh, from chatting with friends and, and reading in the press 
that people are alarmed that, that when they see $4 a gallon gasoline that, that our standard of living is at risk. And, and the fact that Jevons was alarmed uh, is interesting in and of itself. It, to me, it highlights a, a human foible that, that we all have of assuming that tomorrow is going to be like yesterday, that trends just keep continuing. They don't. They often turn around and stop and reverse and bump up and down and change. And, uh, <coughs> and I think people just assume that, well, if gas was $3 a gallon a year ago and it's $4 a gallon now, a year from now, it'll be $5 a gallon. And of course, there's no reason for that to be true, as we've talked about. There, there is going to be um, tremendous uh, incentives now for people to find more uh, sources of, of energy, whether it's carbon-based or whether it's not. And that is going to, going to often, as it has in the past, reverse any short-run price spike. So I, I think people have just assumed that we're now in an era of ever-rising prices. Um, an assumption people made, for example, about housing prices mm -hmm. until about six months or a year ago, and they realized, oh, they can go down also. Right. And I think when prices of oil drop, uh, which I suspect they will at some point, uh, people are going to go, oh, I guess it wasn't as bad as, as I thought it was. Well, you know, look, you and I remember the 1970s, and, uh, you know, the again, the doomsday predictions – uh, about energy supplies in the 1970s, and uh, uh, it, by 1986, OPEC was a joke. You know, the price of oil hit—I forget the exact inflation-adjusted figure. Right, it was incredibly low. low, and by the time George Bush the first got into office, 1989, uh, they were concerned. I think the concerns were, were misplaced. But they were concerned by a lot of people on the left that George, that George Bush would uh, uh, pressure the. Uh, 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 OPEC countries into raise because George Bush is from Texas into raising oil prices because oil prices were way too low, and, that, and this is a concern just 20 years ago, less than 20 years ago. Now oil prices are high, so now we're concerned. I think I think the more the the, the deeper issue. I, th I think the district people do extrapolate trends. It's natural. The deeper issue is it's very difficult for for any. We, we can't imagine the future. We, 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 we can imagine futures, but we can never really get it right. And because we use, and which is understandable, it's all we know. We use what we know of the present, and we just extrapolate a little bit of that present into the future. And take any time period you wish, like 25 year long time periods, and go back to, you know, go back to 1950. Is it, was it possible for people in 1950 to really imagine? Many of the things would be available in 1975. Things in 1970, people in 75 to imagine was available in, in 2000. People in 1875 to be able to imagine what was available in 1900. None of these, none of these advances were planned. None of the advances could have been planned. It's the very nature of the, the you know, cap, Joseph Schimpeter's term of creative destruction. It's the very nature of creativity to be creative. It's cr new, genuinely new things, things that, at least given the human mind as we have it, things that cannot possibly be um, predicted in any scientific way. All we can know is that, all we do know is that in the past, genuine creativity has taken place and it has increased the standard of living in pe of people living in reasonably free economies. We know that. It's been, it's been steady. 
with you know little cyclical blips, but it's been a steady increase. And be, and because it's genuine creativity that does it, um, we can't today know the details of what that creativity will yield in the future, except to say we, you and I would say, we're confident it will yield something. But it's it's a difficult debating point because someone says, "Oh yeah, what? What will it do? Will, 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 will it be air powered cars? Will it be oil extracted from pine trees? What, what will it be?" So we don't know. Right. We don't know. But but I'm pretty confident it'll be. And but because we can't say, "Oh, it will be X," then people say, "Ah, we can dismiss that." So the best we can do is assume that what we know today is going to exist into the future, and therefore. The future is going to be bad because what we know today is that oil prices are, are rising. We have a limited stock of oil as far as we know. Uh, and so we, we, we just better prepare for the worst. Yeah. To, to go back to the pistachio story, you know, my claim in that story is that the natural incentives <clears throat> in place as things get scarce, scarcer are that eventually we will leave oil on the ground. We'll never use it all up. We'll never run out of oil right. because eventually it will become non-economic to, to, to extract it all. But that, of course, could be wrong, too. It could be that we find such inexpensive ways to extract oil that we'll use it all. Uh, and the last drop, even though it's very far away and very expensive to get to now, may turn out to be very inexpensive to get to in the future. And the timing of alternatives may be such that we just, yeah, we'll use it all up and then we'll turn to something else. It'll be laying there ready for us. The, the um, It's interesting to me, talking about the sort of psychological limitations we have. Everybody understands that if you travel back in time, I'm going to pick a longer period of time. Let's take 100 years. If you went back in time to 1900 and said, what could you imagine the world would be like in 2008? And you're a master of this, Don, of, 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 of bringing someone forward and, and what they would marvel at. Um, it, it's not just, oh, they'd be really impressed with all the stuff we have. It, it, it goes so far beyond that that uh, any predictions about what's going to happen in the next 25 years or, or 10 years or 50 years just is, is so inane. Mm-hmm. But people, you know, the sky's always falling, yeah. uh, even though it, it, it never falls and even though it's remarkably different sky after all the efforts of human creativity and enterprise to change it. You know, I mean, I think, I think probably we're, not, not probably, I'm pretty sure we're evolved to be natural pessimist in this sense. And it probably does serve a good uh, survival purpose in the past. Um, if you don't know what the future holds, and if you live in a world of you know, really strict resource constraints, then better to uh, squirrel things away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, better to be a little bit pessimistic than to err on the side of, of optimism. The problem, though, when we take these sentiments, when these sentiments uh, arise in a modern great society, as Hayek called it, uh, it it they they get filtered through this incredibly uh, distorting political process, and so the political process translates this natural pessimism into policies, and that I think is the is the big fear, uh, you know. A legitimate fear. A, a legitimate, <laughs> I mean, look, and, and the example now, it's not hard to, to, to find an example. You mentioned it earlier, the ethanol thing. The ethanol thing is driven, it's a classic Bruce Yandel, Baptist and bootleggers story. Yeah. Obviously, the Baptists in the story, the, you know, the well-meaning persons, the people who are, oh, well, people are concerned about, about energy supplies. Uh, and, and pollution. And pollution, right? And so 
let's uh, let's let's uh, make fuel out of food. Right. Well, of course, you know the, the bootleggers or the corn farmers. I mean, they're 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 making out like bandits in this fiasco. Uh, but already, even though it hasn't been that long, there's growing, and I'm happy about this because it's been such a fiasco, widespread recognition that this has been a catastrophe. Right? You know, the, 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 the price of gasoline at the pump, part of the reason it's higher now is not just India and China, it's because of the ethanol mandates. Uh, and, and that's driving up the cost of food, not only for Americans, but more catastrophically poorer people. for poorer people around the world. And, and so here's this fear we have, uh, this pe- natural pessimism that we have, gets translated into government policy. And the policy has really bad unintended consequences. Yeah, one of the things that fascinates me about the ethanol thing is that I think uh, a lot of the uh, better intention folks who were behind the ethanol uh, movement have started to have second thoughts because they've yeah. seen some of the consequences. Now they're suddenly more sympathetic to this idea that it doesn't even save energy. That's right. All that it's done is made uh, people who depend on corn for their f- food as a food staple to be incredibly uh, – much poorer than they were before, and they're starting to have second thoughts. It's interesting that we interesting to see how long it takes for the government to do something about it. When a private sector initiative is a disaster, and a company makes a disastrous blunder on a new product, the Edsel being a, a famous example, or New Coke, New Coke is another example. In my next book, I use the example of Corfam, which is a leather substitute that that was introduced. That it's great that. fanfare always, yeah. right? People always say this great excitement. Turns out, it's, they're wrong. What? Olestra. Olestra, yeah. Uh, a lot of fanfare, a lot of hoopla. Oh, it's wrong. Very quickly disappears. So the private sector, the emergent uh, decentralized uh, voluntary actions of, of individuals pursuing their own self-interest make their mistakes often. Mm-hmm. But they get purged pretty quickly. <clears throat> uh, the question is, how long is it going to take the political process to purge this mistake? Now, there are rumblings that, that something ought to be done. But it will be a very interesting thing to see how long it takes, uh, or if at all, if it changes. Because that vested interest of those corn people, they fight really hard. You know, that we've touched in the past in here, I think, on the sugar issue. Mm-hmm. You know, sugar quotas and the way we run sugar in the United States benefits a very, very, very small number of people. And it makes an enormously larger number of people pay more for everything that uses sugar. But – we can't seem to get rid of it, as uh, Milton Friedman pointed out in an earlier podcast. It just kind of persists because of the natural political inertia there. Uh, let's see how long it takes ethanol to get uh, stopped. Now, it should give pause, I think, to people who want to use the public sector to solve these problems. Right now, this I, I think there's sort of a perfect political storm, which, which I find very worrisome, which you're really alluding to in, in terms of the potential for error. We have the global warming issue, that people are worried about global warming, and therefore we should use less carbon. We have the instability in the Middle East issue, that Iraq is of very, very uncertain stability. Iran could could be next. Saudi Arabia could go. There's a lot of arguments, therefore, that we, we need to stop, quote, depending on the Middle East for oil. Of course, we don't depend on them. We, we get our oil from all kinds of places, many of them unfriendly, many mm-hmm. of them politically unstable, including Venezuela, including Russia. But the fact that there's lots of them to me is, is a source of, com- of comfort. But because of this the political argument, the global warming argument, the idea that gasoline is getting so expensive, there's an immense feeling on the part, I think, of, of educated, thoughtful people that something has to be done. We, we've got to somehow 
intervene in this process and, and control it. Now, if we could and do it wisely, probably would be a good idea. I don't see any evidence we can do it wisely. No, I, I perfectly agree. I mean, what was the, it was this fiasco, and not quite a fiasco, it was a ridiculous move on Capitol Hill a few weeks ago, uh, mid-May maybe or late May, uh, to, uh, to pass a bill that would uh, allow, I think it's the U.S. government, to sue any country that would restrict the, product, restrict the supply of oil. You know, so Congress does this, and gets you know bipartisan support, and 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 everyone in Capitol, the senators and representatives, are all patting themselves on the back for their ridiculously lame move. Um, and as George Will pointed out in one of his columns, so well by this standard, Congress itself should be sued because it doesn't allow drilling in Anwar. In, in, in Anwar, National yeah. Wildlife Refuge. Yeah. Now, regardless of what you National think about about the, you know. Wisdom of drilling in Anwar or not? Here you have. Why would we trust? Why would we trust our future to people who who are so inconsistent as to to do this? This is ridiculous political theater, and that's what politicians excel at: political theater. I, you know, I know I'm a cynic about politics. There's no, it's no. hard to hide. Yeah, I am. Um, no, I'm not a cynic. I'm a realist about politics. There you go. Uh, but so so they're skilled at political theater. Why do we think that these people who who conduct what I would regard as embarrassing political theater will you know the next day turn around and engage in really serious policy uh, uh, making that that will that, that that will make our futures better? I, I, the I, nexus of geology, engineering, and economics is somehow going to be solved by you know they'll draw on the experts' opinion and do the right thing. Yeah, but it, you know, it raises this interesting question, which I've struggled with ever since I really started doing these podcasts, as to what our role as economists should be, right? So uh, there are lots of proposals out there that, in a perfect world, might make things a little bit better. Uh, but since we don't live in a perfect world, I'm sometimes very loath to, to get behind them. And it raises a question of what we ought to be encouraging. Um, we do lots of things, as you pointed out earlier, that distort the energy market. Some of them may be uh, inappropriate ways. Most of them, I suspect, in inappropriate ways. Um, what what should citizens expect of their politicians, and what should they ask of them? Uh, you know, we, we, you and I, are, tend to be um, laissez-faire. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, we're, we're, we're tend to let things go. We understand that that doesn't lead to a perfect world. There are a lot of things that go wrong when you let things go. Uh, a lot of things go wrong when you intervene. So. Do you want to say anything about what might be some good policies, or do you want to just say uh, that that's a mistake because it's all going to get passed through the sausage grinder and it's absurd to even try to suggest anything good? Well, I mean, it's, it will all be passed through the sausage grinder, unfortunately, and so whatever emerges will not be even the best that, that is attainable uh, in, in, in this imperfect world of ours. But I, I personally would would you know, get into Get rid of a lot of the environmental restrictions on on drilling. Um, when was the last time there was a major oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico? I think 1970 was the last time. So I mean, the technology for drilling and the safety of drilling is now enormously improved from what it used to be. Why can't we drill in Anwar, for example, or, or off the coasts of the U.S., where drilling is now prohibited for environmental reasons? Um, uh, 
one of the, I think we said this before in an earlier podcast, one of the things I do find encouraging is still the lack of any serious prospect of price controls on oil and, and, and natural gas. Now, that, that could change if this perfect political storm intensifies. Yeah. Uh, well, here's the irony of that, though, right? There's always a temptation to use price controls to make voters happy, yeah. artificially lowering prices in a time of a price spike. And then on the other side, you've got a whole movement that wants to raise prices, yeah, yeah. That, that wants to hur- – this point I made earlier, that wants to hurry along this transition to a safer, cleaner, uh, better technology uh, towards solar or ethanol, whatever it is. And what we really need if we want to improve the country is a $2 a gallon tax. So you have politicians proposing a gas tax holiday, which is unlikely to have any, <laughs> any benefits at all. And at the same time, you have people advocating for these – Higher prices, so so there's a there's a consensus that the price of gasoline isn't right, but whether it should be lower or higher is is totally up in the air. That's right. Yeah, it, it, who 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 really knows? By the way, on this carbon tax issue, um, you know, a lot of sensible people will say, well, yeah, of course we don't want to control the price of gasoline, but but there is an externality and you know global warming, and so uh, political instability in the Middle East, right? right? <laughs> and, and and so even on pure Wealth, static welfare economic grounds. We can say, okay, maybe, maybe the price is too low, but we don't know that for sure. Right now, there's a what is it, a tw- nineteen or twenty cent federal tax on gasoline. There's state taxes on gasoline. How do we know that these taxes are not too high? Right. It, it, they could be too low, but you can't simply say, as a lot of people do, oh, there is an <clears throat> there's a plausible ex- negative externality in burning fossil fuels, therefore, we should raise taxes on those fossil fuels. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe we should lower them. Yeah, maybe we should keep so. them just the same. And so there's this, this, this pretense of knowledge among people who, who even appear to be apolitical. Oh, well, look, it's just an economic thing, you know, externality, higher taxes. Well, no, no, we have taxes on them now. Right, we do. And, and, and as far as I know, no one has done any careful calculation uh, that would that would show that those taxes are too low and we have to raise them. Well, maybe people have done these kinds of calculations. Uh, I well, shouldn't, they've I tried say to, that. but, but um, they're very difficult. To do well, and you have not only taxes at, at the pump. You have a whole series of taxes along the way in the production process uh, and corporate taxes. I don't know the figures, but I, uh, I've seen them in detail, but I'm sure you've seen them too. But apparently, the amount of revenue that Uncle Sam gets from uh, each barrel of oil is higher than the amount of profit that oil companies get from each barrel of yeah, oil. Yeah, I've seen that. I don't know if that's true. It is important to make the point that uh, you know, right now, oil companies are making ref- record profits. And of course, I hate to say this. I hate that. It makes me sad that, that, ha- that this has to be said, but I have to say it. Nothing we are saying today is a defense of oil companies, a defense that somehow that oil is special, that the oil industry should be protected, or that somehow oil is the future of our economy. If, if something comes along that's more effective, we'd be thrilled to see every oil company go out of business. Absolutely, There's no reason that they need to be protected or coddled or given special protection, which, of course, they get uh, from time to time because sometimes the price of oil is really low. Uh but right now, oil profits are extremely high. They're at record levels, both uh, in certainly in nominal terms and probably, I guess, even corrected for inflation. They're extremely high. Uh, 
the question is, what do they do with the money? Well, they give some of it back to their shareholders, which I suppose I'm one. I should mention I've got – I don't own any individual shares of oil companies, but I have mutual funds, index mutual funds that I'm sure hold well, surely oil have companies. some energy stock in right? it, yeah. Uh, and, and I encourage, by the, as you point out earlier, if, if you're really offended by high energy company profits, buy their stock. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's a joke. I'm not giving any financial advice, but uh, that would be a natural consequence of that kind of concern. If you're worried that the effects are unfair or that they get well, they go to the to certain people, you can certainly join in on that those profits. But some of those that money goes to shareholders, uh, but much of it goes, of course, to looking for for more oil and. Not much of it goes to building new refineries. Uh, it's become very expensive to build a new refinery for environmental reasons. We may decide – you may think that's a good idea or not, but it is a, it's a fact that it's become much more expensive to build a new refinery. Uh, there hasn't been one built in a long time. I know there's one under proposal right now for the first time in decades. Uh, so what oil companies do with their money is they expand existing refineries <coughs> and capacity. It's not like you – know, when people hear that, that statement – there are no new refineries since 19-whatever. They think, oh, my gosh, there's no more oil. But they're, they're punching out a lot of gasoline. Yeah. Uh, they're refining lots of gasoline. It just they've expanded existing refineries. Um, and, you know, on that point, it, it, it should be pointed out, too, that, that regardless of your view of how much the environment should or should not be protected with government policy, these protections uh, come at a cost. As Thomas Sowell says, reality is not optional. Yeah. It's it's there, and so uh, if if we're going to to uh, limit drilling in Anwar and off the coast, if we're going to limit the building of refineries, uh, we're going to have different regulations across then, regions then of the those, United States, so that price spikes in one area won't be uh, smoothed by supplies coming in from other regions because there's different standards for different in fact our quality production. Our uh, my friend Andy Morris, who teaches law at the University of Illinois. He just wrote a, a nice article about a year ago. It's, I think it's up in Cafe Hayek. Um, I'll find a reference. We'll find it. Um, he co-authored it. I can't now recall the name of his co-author. Uh, showing that over the past uh, few decades, the market for, market for gasoline has gone, in the United States, has become very fragmented. It was a, a, national, a national commodity. Market. Yeah. And now it's becoming much more fragmented. Which, which makes it more expensive because economies of scale that in the past could be captured now cannot be captured. Yeah, right. And it's becoming more fragmented because different states have different standards for gasoline and how, they, how it can be refined. And you may think that's a good idea. I yeah, but, but you have but, to be willing to pay the cost. But that's the effect of it, and that's the, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, um, you know, look, ultimately prices uh, that are not controlled by government Prices reflect an underlying reality, and that underlying reality itself may be uh, a bit distorted. You may argue that the failure to drill an Anwar is a distortion of reality, uh, but that is an underlying reality today, and that's reflected in part in the price that we pay at the pump. The 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 uh, rise of Demand coming from the Indians and the Chinese is part of the underlying reality. Our greater wealth in enabling us to, to, to drive more and to buy big gas-guzzling SUVs is part of the underlying reality. And the price reflects that. And the best we can do 
is to accept that underlying reality and and saying, oh no no that that, that price is bad. Let's let's not let that price should be something different. You know that <laughs> that's very bad policy if you go down that road. You you can you can reasonable people can argue about what government can or shouldn't do to affect the underlying reality, but intervening to change the price is like shooting a messenger. It doesn't change the message that the messenger brings. Yeah. That's, um, do you want to close saying something about Jillian Simon? We've been talking today about the fact that prices reflect scarcity, which is what your most recent point is, and um, the fears that people have that re- – our society in the near future will somehow be handicapped by these higher prices. And Julian Simon had a much more optimistic view of, of things. And I just I want to mention the title of his book, which uh, of his book on this topic, which was the ultimate resource that that human creativity is the ultimate resource, and our ability to cope with change. Uh, should always take into account the fact that we rely on our brains, which are, uh, although they're enclosed in our skulls, they do have great capacity. Yeah, well, Russ, as you know, Julian Simon is one of my great heroes. He's right up there with Hayek. Um, and you know, not only his insight about human creativity or you, the human mind being the ultimate resource, not, not only is that important to me, but just the way he did empirical work, showing uh, what happens to the prices of resources over time, uh, what happens to the price of resources relative to wage rates. Some of his creative insights, one that's had a big impact on me, uh, it, it came from the introduction to his 1995 edited volume, The State of Humanity, where he pointed out that regardless of what you think about pollution today, most of the pollutants that were uh, experienced by y- humankind throughout history, by our an- our relatively near-in ancestors, great-grandparents, tuberculosis, cholera, malaria. Um, we've virtually wiped all these things out. And so it's in, a... In the it, developed world. In the developed world. That, that's right. That's right. Well, the, in, 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 the, in those societies that produce the kinds of pollutants that we today worry about, the kinds of pollutants that actually killed men, women, and children for most of human history have been either eliminated completely, like smallpox, or dramatically reduced. People don't worry about tuberculosis much anymore. Cholera, we, yeah. Polio, right? Now, yeah, so it's true to say, well, okay, these things aren't pollutants in the way that uh, carbon uh, um, coming out of the carbon monoxide, dioxide, carbon monoxide coming out of a car's tailpipe is a pollutant. But what's the ultimate concern? The ultimate concern is, well, is our, how free is our environment of things that are hazardous to our health and comfort? And I, I'm sorry, I challenge anybody to come to um, the United States today, go to an ordinary middle-class neighborhood, and if you know anything about history, that neighborhood is the equivalent of a sanitary operating room <laughs> compared to what the living environment, the, the living environments of our ancestors of even just a hundred years ago. I mean, we live in an extraordinarily clean 
uh, safe, non-perilous environment. Capitalism isn't creating a more polluted environment. Capitalism is cleaning our environment. And as Julian Simon says somewhere, I forget the exact quote, he says, it's, it's a, we're privileged to be able to worry about uh, the kinds of pollutants that we today worry about. Because these pollutants, you know, they're not going to kill us right away, unlike, you know, tuberculosis that might, you know, that killed your ancestors right away. You know, they're fairly speculative. There's still a lot of debate going on. Well, is the, is the earth warming? You know, what's going to happen to temperature over the next 100, 200 years? And what will that do? How will we adjust? Maybe these are legitimate concerns. Obviously, as, as we, adjust, we, you know, we, we make decisions at the margin. And so as, our, as we wipe out one problem, other problems that in the past weren't of concern now become of concern. But we at least recognize that it's a privilege. We're lucky to be worried about the kinds of pollutants that we today worry about because capitalism and commerce have rid us of the vast majority of the kinds of pollutants that were much more directly uh, uh, in our face and much more directly perilous to our existence than are the kind of pollutants that we worry about today. Yeah, I always find it ironic that people um, talk about how dangerous our society is, our products, our air, and yet lifespan and life expectancy continues to expand as we somehow manage to increase uh, overcome those those negatives and it's exactly what you're saying the things that kill people now kill people later than they did in the past and that's a blessing of tremendous tremendous proportion i, I made this point once in an article and i got an email from some woman i don't know and she was a nurse she, was, she signed her signature you know so and so rn and uh she abraded me for being unaware that that more people die of cancer a greater portion of the population die of cancer today than died of cancer in the 19th century. Now, I don't know if this fact is true, but I, I, I accept it. I accept true. it as true. I think it is true because cancer is primarily an old person's disease. Yes, yeah. some some young people get it. But it's primarily right. an old person's disease, and so that fact she didn't realize it, but that fact helped prove my point. We're living longer, and so as you live longer, you have a greater prospect of of getting cancer. By the way, just in the past 15 or 20 years, there's been this sort of silent improvement in in cancer survival rates. Cancer is not the killer that it was even even in the mid-1980s. But it is important to point out, of course, that the death rate still remains about roughly 100% for human beings. So you, you are going to die of something. What you want to die of is something relatively painless a long time from now. Yeah. And that's what we've gotten better and better at as our societies have gotten more economically developed. Yeah, and that's, uh, that, that, that is a result of capitalism and trade. My guest today has been Don Boudreau of George Mason University. Don, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.